Kia ora and welcome to Te Heringawaka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. On Thursday the 22nd of October, Professor Ian Williamson hosted a webinar on the state of trade and business between New Zealand and the United States. He was joined for the panel discussion by Her Excellency Rosemary Banks, Hannah Lee Darbo and Professor Alan Bollard. Uh, my name is Professor Ian Williamson. Warm Pacific greetings to everyone who is joining us today. Uh, I am the Dean and Pro Vice Chancellor of the Wellington School of Business and Government here at Victoria University of Wellington. Uh, I bring you greetings from a surprisingly sunny Wellington today. Uh, we'll see how long that lasts. For those of you who've been to Wellington uh, many times, you'll know that that's not going to necessarily be the whole day. Today, we have a really exciting uh, session that we're going to do. The, the topic is looking at New Zealand United States trade relationships through the COVID-19 era. We really expect this to be a very timely and uh, very uh, topical type of discussion and certainly because of the people we have with us are very insightful. But let me jump right in and introduce our, uh, our prestigious panel. So beginning with, uh, I would just like to acknowledge Her Excellency Ambassador Rosemary Banks, who was New Zealand's ambassador to the United States uh, based in Washington, D.C. Uh, ambassador Banks has had an extensive career with MFAT. Uh, prior to her appointment as ambassador, she served as a crown negotiator for the Treaty of Otaki settlement process. Ambassador Banks, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Uh, I'd also like to acknowledge Hannah Lee Darbo uh, is New Zealand's Council General and Trade Commissioner located in New York City, where she is responsible for New Zealand's business across the United States. Uh, Hannah has a background in marketing, strategy, and business improvement. Hannah, thank you very much for taking the time to join us from New York City. And last but certainly not least, I'd like to just recognize Professor Alan Bollard. Alan is the chair of Pacific Region Business here at the Wellington School of Business and Government. Uh, he is, uh, was the governor of the Reserve Bank in New Zealand from 2000, uh, I think, 10 to 2012. And from 2012 to 2018, he was the executive director of the APEC Secretariat based in Singapore the world's largest regional body that promotes trade, investment, and sustainable economic growth in the Asia Pacific. Um, and I should note that in 2021, uh, APEC will be hosted by New Zealand. Um, we'll see exactly how we do that, perhaps virtually. Over the next hour, we will be exploring how New Zealand and the United States, um, what is the linkage between these two countries as it pertains to trade, how that's being affected by the pandemic that is going on around the world, um, the global impact of the COVID-19, the impact of increasing nationalism and how this situation is evolving and what that evolution will mean for our ties as countries going forward. And I think it's a very timely question. Obviously, we just had an election here in New Zealand and we have another one coming up in a few in less than two weeks in America. And we'll definitely tap into those questions as well. But let's perhaps start with a more broad question. And, and Alan, I might just start with you. And just to ask this broader question around what are we seeing right now when it comes to trade between the United States and New Zealand? Um, is it increasing? Is it declining? Where are we seeing different activities? Uh, what, what's your sense of the activity and the relationship from a trade perspective at the moment? Oh, thank you, Ian. Kia ora, everybody. Uh, the relationship, the economic trade relationship with the United States is an interesting one. I mean, actually, at the moment, uh, a lot of our trade focus well, really over the last couple of years, it's just been growing the East Asia trade and watching East Asia go through COVID pretty successfully, watching those markets open up, commodity prices remain quite good. And uh, we've, of course, emerging middle-class markets there. It's a strong sucking demand on New Zealand resources and consequently trade into China and other East Asian markets has grown a lot faster than trade into the United States. Trade into the United States has been growing, but if you look at the traditional merchandise trade flows, uh, it's been growing slower. And in fact, in a way, really, uh, we don't tie into the same supply chains into the United States that have been very successful for us in Southeast Asia and East Asia. And that has led to a bit of a different trade pattern growth. Uh, and I think if you want to look for innovative things with the New Zealand US economic relationship, it's probably more in the area of services trade, foreign direct investment, capital flows, uh, digital firms, digital technologies, and absolutely data flows, because uh, the, the big growth 
in globalization at the minute isn't so much trade across borders, it's data across borders. And in our case, most of that is data, which is going via US-based digital firms. And actually, most of that data is owned by US digital firms as well. So that's a, that's a sort of a very much a, a modern economic focus, but it isn't the big volumes and it isn't the big um, container loads of milk powder and meat and so on that are going into East Asia. Thank you, Alan. Well, Hannah, you, you would obviously be engaging with various New Zealand businesses across the country. And I'd be curious to get from your perspective, um, what is the experience of New Zealand businesses on the ground right now? How, how are they navigating the various sources of uncertainty that we're dealing with at the moment? Certainly. Thank, thank you, first of all, um, Professor Williamson. Nice to meet you, Dr. Bollard, and lovely to see you again, Rosemary. Um, and kia ora to all the Kiwis out there, particularly those in New York. Um, so I guess, first of all, I work for New Zealand Trade and Enterprise, so we work with New Zealand businesses who are exporting around the world. Uh, there are about 14,000 exporters. We work with about 4,000 of those. Ah, that's a great question. I would say our exporters have been really outwardly optimistic, um, but when you look behind the scenes a little bit more, I think there's a lot more rationalisation going on that, than what we hear about. Um, I would say an overall trend is that businesses are retreating to the core, the core markets of which the US, China and Australia are, I think, what, what most of them would consider their core markets. They're doubling down in those markets. Um, as a result, we're seeing uh, less investment in um, edgier innovation in R&D, I think. Um, and probably a little bit more caution around hiring or hiring for employees when they leave. Um, so I'd say that's overall for New Zealand businesses. What do we see here in the US? As I said, this has become one of the core markets for many of them. Um, if you'd asked me six months ago how many businesses we work with here in the USA, I would have said 215. Now I'm saying more like 400. Mm -hmm. So certainly during this period where businesses are just going back to the core, to the basics, to try and do the best out of that, trying to make the most of a big market, finding their niche in markets like this, um, we're certainly seeing a lot more smaller businesses try and come into the US to try and um, make some successes here. Um, how are they navigating it? It's a really great question because many of them aren't here on the ground. So and they've been used to being here on the ground to do business. For example, um, there is one um, meat company, we small, a small premium meat company we work with, and um, the CEO there used to travel up here every six weeks to do business. The lamb you buy in Whole Foods, he would basically go in and meet Whole Foods every six weeks. So he's a lot of our companies have had to learn how to do business in a different way. Um, in some ways, I would say having to do virtual selling has evened the playing field for New Zealand businesses a little bit. Um, it's meant we are on an even keel. Um, overall, I would say they've been very pragmatic, um, very resilient. Um, and we're seeing quite a lot of creativity coming coming over here in the U.S. Mm. Thank you, Hannah. It's, it, it is interesting to think about. Uh, it is not always the case that every shock is a negative one, and it perhaps in some cases can level the playing field as opposed to skew it. And I think those who are able to sort of take advantage of technology, as we see even with today, um, you know, that, that does create a perspective or an advantage. Yeah, and 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 also I think like to to go on that. To go down that same route, those companies, um, often it's a case, for many companies, it's been a case of being in the right place at the right time, mm. or the inverse is the same. Um, so an example for that is one of the tech companies, you, you know, Dr. Bullard, you talked about services companies. There's a technology company that um, does virtual funerals, for example, um, who has obviously found a way to bring people together virtually when they're not able to be here in person, have got unprecedented demand. The flip side of that is one of our biggest other tech companies um, sells cinematic enterprise solutions. So that market's completely dried up. So when you get into those situations, the ability to quickly pivot and take advantage of that opportunity that you've got or move away and find new channels and, and your, your agility to be able to do that, I think sets those businesses apart. Hmm. So Rosemary, I'd be keen to get your perspective. What, what is your perception or perspective on the US-New Zealand trade relationship at the moment? 
And how do you see that progressing? And thank you, Professor Williamson, for the invitation to, to be with you all on the panel. Well, Hannah's at the Sharpie in dealing with the companies, and here in Washington, we're trying to deal with the policy. So, you know, one of the one of the questions that we have raised a number of times, in fact, I'll go into a little bit of history uh, shortly with our US uh, friends and counterparts is what about a free trade agreement? Now, interestingly, we actually raised this, we found for the first time in 1870, the then Premier uh, Fox wrote to the then US Consul and said he would be interested in discussing a trade agreement to facilitate trade between our two countries. Well, sadly, nothing happened at that time, but then we had another run at it in 1934, and again in 1941. So, you know, sadly, 150 years before the first recorded uh, incident of our raising the idea of a trade agreement, uh, we still have that gap in our otherwise pretty comprehensive relationship. Now, I don't think there are, you know, there's no burning issues. Uh, the access is relatively good, and we don't have New Zealand companies beating on the door saying, you know, we really, really need a free trade agreement. But as Dr. Bollard noted uh, earlier, when you have them, you find that the, uh, the trade obviously goes up. And some interesting statistics, in a seven-year period that Foreign Affairs and Trade Act between 2008 and 15, uh, where we had free trade agreements, merchandise uh, trade went up by just under 12%. And where we didn't, it actually declined, and that, of course, includes the US, it declined over that same period by 2.2%. So, you know, we think there is scope. It may not be massive scope, but there is scope to improve our, our trade and economic relationship. We've had another run at that in, in more recent times, including over the past 18 months or so. Of course, now we're in the sort of pre-election period here, and we're in a in a, a, a pause period in our own election cycle, but this may well be a, an issue that we'll want to come back to in future. It would not be easy here because irrespective of who wins the, the uh, coming election in the US, there's not going to be a great hunger for doing new free trade agreements. So you, you raise one of the important issues and obviously one of the huge elephants in the room, the, the election. And I, I think you know, we talk about uncertainty and the impact it has on business confidence and business decisions. Uh, there's probably at least four uh, big ones that we've sort of have dominated the oxygen in the room over the last, say, 12 months. One of them obviously being the election, another being COVID. Um, related to that, also thinking about the geopolitical relationships that are between various countries, particularly U.S. and China. And then um, over the last several months, particularly in the U.S., but quickly globally, this issue around racial inequality, racial just injustice, and Black Lives Matter being one of those, those trigger points. So I, I might try to see if we can get a few perspectives on those on three or four of those issues if we have time. And, and maybe we'll start with the election, because that is certainly looming quite large over all of our discussion. And just maybe open this up to uh, individuals to sort of get a sense. And maybe it might be good, Hannah, if you are uh, Ambassador Banks, if you want to start with this issue around what is the mood um, in the business community right now and how do you think New Zealand businesses are thinking about it in the days leading up to this election? Well, I'll leave Hannah to talk about how the New Zealand businesses are thinking about it, but just in terms of the attitudes and the, you know, the um, mood that's being expressed here. Interesting Gallup Economic Confidence Index that was published just very recently, you might have seen it. Uh, that evaluates the, the economy, not only the current state of the economy, but where people think it's going. So times are still fairly tough here, even though the, uh, the economy has picked up somewhat since the really initial impact of COVID. But just to give you a perspective, the the, the, um, the Gallup Economic Confidence Index in February, when things were going really well and the economy was humming along very nicely, was 41. It's now minus four. Mm. And admittedly, that's quite an improvement on April when it was minus 32. 
So, you know, if you if you look at what the US Chamber of Commerce is saying, they're predicting a K-shaped recovery, not the V-shaped recovery that the president is determined to convince us we're going to have. And the K-shape is, of course, you know, the guys who are doing really well, Hannah touched on some of that, uh, the tech companies and others who are uh, accommodating people working at home and the new health needs, but a, a lot of people are going to be left behind. So there's not really one business confidence mood or one mood, depends where you are in the economy. But Hannah, what do you, how are you picking things up? Um, I haven't heard much talk about it myself. I think um, business is uh, pretty pragmatic, head down, bum up a little bit. Um, I would say that the majority of our businesses sell to the affluent consumer who are predominantly across the West Coast or the Northeast or in some of um, Austin, Texas, those kinds of areas. Um, so I, I think we're all hoping for stability as much as we can. I think um, more social unrest will be quite disruptive will bring people back to their homes, it will disrupt um, consumers' behaviour, which will, of course, then affect, affect our businesses. So a bit hard to tell. Mm. And, and Alan, maybe you might provide some perspective in terms of just the outlook. Uh, obviously, we, we won't know and we're not going to try to guess here today as to who we think will be the ultimate, um, who will win the election. But you know, what, what do you think are some of the policy differences or trade differences you might anticipate if you have a, say, a Biden administration versus a return of a Trump administration? Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. And and Hannah, it's interesting you saying people, you've already said people not that focused on it there. But I, I mean, from New Zealand, um, for the less educated and less, less in contact with the US, it just looks a mess. It looks very fragmented, full of churn, very uncertain. And a lot of this is the US election, but of course it's not all, it's COVID response. And, and US, China, ESC, and, and Black Lives Matter. And I'd say impending climate change issues as well. These are a lot of things coming at once that really make for a highly uncertain environment. So when we look at how we might typically look at um, economic prospects, uh, the, the big thing that for me, this says is just a massive amount of uncertainty. And Rosemary, those data you quoted are pretty interesting. Um, so we think that, I mean, the IMF thinks the US economy contracts by just about 5% this year. They think it, it grows by 3% next year. There'll probably be about two lost years out of that on our current thinking. But we have to say, we don't actually know. We haven't been in this sort of situation before. It is very unusual. We're learning quite a bit about COVID. We haven't really learned about economic response yet. And that partly relates to New Zealand as well as the United States, just how economies get through this. We've got the world's greatest fiscal stimulus ever. And um, you know, at the minute, um, Congress and President are arguing about would they put in another $2 trillion of stimulus? That's $2 trillion. Mm. We used to talk in billions of dollars. That's trillion. The um, general feeling around the OECD is there's probably a $10 trillion stimulus out there. We don't know what that does. We, when I look at what it does to the US um, sovereign or, or public debt, it's pretty horrendous. It says it gets up to 130% of GDP. Now, back in the global financial crisis, we thought that was in in very worrying territory. Um, the markets don't seem to be worried about it at the minute. Maybe they will be in a while. We, <clears throat> we're still yet to see what this um, shock will do for, say, mortgage loan defaults and business um, loan defaults as well. The US banks seem to be reasonably confident about that. The Federal Reserve's reasonably confident about it at the minute. They've done stress tests. But the GFC did tell us that shocks can come in ways that we don't expect and can have contagion in ways we don't expect either. So I think we just have to say there's a lot of uncertainty around in all of that. What Hannah was saying was, well, in the middle of all of that, there's established relationships and New Zealand businesses are going about um, developing those in particular places. And absolutely, that's very good to hear. I've heard on the funding side that actually a number of small New Zealand high tech companies, which do very much relate to the US because 
one way or another, that's where they're going to end up or get their funding from or have, have particular relations with. Um, they're now able to zoom into um, Silicon Valley and get the same sort of hearings that US firms are getting. Mm. That's quite enlightening for them rather than having to get on the trek around Silicon Valley and knock on doors and things. We don't know how long that'll go on for, but there have been some quite successful fundraising by New Zealand venture capital or, or high-tech companies, startups and high-growth companies recently. So, yeah, there's some definitely some positives in that. And anything that's got tele in front of it or e in front of it or digital in front of it, um, certainly some interesting sort of prospects. But in the meantime, I think, you know, um, international students and um, tourism all in some trouble. And we're watching what's happening in the US, absolutely. Uh, we're not expecting US um, tourists in New Zealand in the near term, although there's been quite a bit of talk about how we could possibly open up and do some um, quarantining in fancy resorts in some luxury rather than the way it's being done currently now as well. So, yeah, I mean, I think the US has got a long way to go and it's going to be quite unclear for a while. Mm. Oh, and I should just say, of course, we look at your polls over there and we recognise that international issues are way down the list of things that the US voters are concerned about. And US trade even less, it seems. And yeah, I'm sure, Rosemary, you're totally right. There is no appetite for those things at the minute. And where's the focus? If it's international, it's on China, and it's pretty negative at the moment. Mm. And just open it up to any of you. Any thoughts around uh, particular risk or opportunities that New Zealand or New Zealand organizations might face if we have, uh, say, a Biden administration versus a Trump administration? Well, maybe I can just jump in on that one. I mean, either way, there'll be a certain range of risks and opportunities. If you take Biden, a Biden win first, uh, well, actually, the better way to deal with it is to say, where are the similarities? There are going to be quite a lot of similarities as well, whether it's Biden or Trump. They're both going to be talking about reshoring significantly, manufacturing, and particularly sensitive areas like medical. They're both going to be putting a lot of the emphasis on the made in America approach. Uh, they'll both be continue to be pretty tough on China. And so, you know, there's a lot of questioning whether a Biden administration would even really lift any of the sanctions that, that Trump has put onto China or the, the tariffs. Probably they're the main similarities in terms of the economy, but then of course the differences uh, would come in areas of tax approaches to climate change, et cetera. If we had a Biden administration, I think there would be opportunities for New Zealand to, to come back with the kind of geostrategic arguments that we've made over the past 18 months or so for a, a trade agreement. They may be more open to that, but as I acknowledged earlier, they'd be more open to the geostrategic argument, but they will also be more constrained by the relationship with the unions. So that may be hard to say whether that's really an opportunity or not. There'll be opportunities in other areas like green recovery, climate change, sustainability that would not be there if we have a return of Trump. If we have a return of Trump, there are a few things that we've sort of started work on, like the possibility of it entering into a trade agreement through a digital trade agreement. We could come back to that. We would probably want to come back to that with whichever administration. So... You know, just at the sort of macro level, because everyone's turned inward as a result of COVID, because there's the sort of wish to bring manufacturing, to bring things back on shore and a, a closer look at supply chains, the fact that New Zealand is a trusted partner, a Five Eyes partner, a you know, provider of reliable goods, that can be an opportunity for us. I think, you know, reputation is pretty important at a time like this. And that would apply for either a Biden or a Trump administration coming in. Rosemary, uh, it, it looks to me like the real difference could be a difference in style rather than in substance. And I guess, you know, we're assuming with the Biden administration, you'd see more clarity, more consistency, more normal diplomatic sort of approach. And that should help reduce uncertainty to some extent. 
Um, I don't think anybody here is expecting uh, free trade agreements or things like that, or even see the US knocking on the door of TPP, stuff like that. Hopefully a bit more positive on the WTO issues and some other international institutions. But the real one real focus for us will be how does the US delegates behave around the APEC table when we're um, hosting, which incidentally starts in a month or pretty much a month's time. And there in APEC, um, if, if um, economies agree with one another, you can incrementally try all sorts of interesting new stuff out. They're not all legally binding trade agreements, but you can try stuff. And especially in the digital space where there's some big gulfs and we really do need to get some common views on some of these things. Do you think that uh, we're going to get a US administration, if it's a new administration, that would be um, obstructive or um, unfocused or supportive for a, a, a number of possible new incubated trial things within an APEC, around the APEC table? Alan, as best as we can guess on that really, I think we could be fairly confident that they'll come back into APEC uh, with a certain amount of um, commitment and energy. There's certainly a recognition uh, on the Biden side from judging by the people that we've been engaging with over the last months, that they need to come into the Indo-Pacific with a, a proper trade and economic presence to somehow get back into some kind of architecture. APEC is the easy one because it's already there. Uh, it gives them an opportunity to quickly express a message of, of commitment to, to our region. And I think because of the, the different approach that a, a President Biden would take to wanting to re-engage, to wanting to re-image the US globally, I think they would see the APEC opportunity as a big one uh, to come into. I certainly don't anticipate that, that, that we'd find any obstruction or any resistance. I think that would be part of their returning to, to sort of global activity that, uh, that hasn't been seen in the past four years. So, Hannah, I'd be curious to get your thoughts. I mean, obviously, uh, Ellen and Rosemary are, are talking about sort of the infrastructure you like that the businesses will ultimately be able to utilize or not utilize. But how they utilize the infrastructure is a very different story. And in, in your earlier comments, you were pointing out that clearly there are some, some organizations which are winning and losing just because of the, the environment that we're in. Just from your perspective, um, if you were thinking about New Zealand businesses looking to expand or enter or contract, what is, you know, do you have any other guidance um, around areas of emphasis or focus or skills that those organizations should be focusing on, taking into account the, the fact that it could get easier, it could get harder based on what administrative or policy decisions might be? Well, I think at the moment we're in the world of digital everything, and I think it will be the same regardless um, of what goes on in the election. So certainly that's where um, those companies that are more likely to be winning are, the, are what they're embracing. Digital is no longer an option. You've got to be able to work virtually. You've got to be able to connect with your buyers virtually. Um, so, uh, and that's certainly where we're seeing some companies almost do 10 years of innovation in the last six months mm. to be able to kind of get on that wave. Um, so that is certainly, um, without a doubt, uh, the number one thing that we're probably supporting and guiding um, businesses on. Um, in regards to kind of that mood around um, elections and, um, and how to broach that, I guess, um, I think many companies have learned pretty quickly that not everybody has the same opinion here and it, and it can actually not be a subject to bring up in the, in the business community. Uh, so it, it is a topic where, um, I mean, I find it in my own personal life here. I'm surprised when I come across people who have got very strong opinions um, that are different than what I'm used to. So certainly we advise people to not assume that everybody thinks like they do and has the same opinion. And actually, in, in many cases, it's best not to even bring it up. Mm. So one of those areas that was identified earlier was this issue between the relationships between the United States and China. And 
And it's an interesting dynamic where you have these two very large economies. They're intertwined almost uh, intimately, if you look at what actually what they're, what they're based on. And then you have New Zealand. And, and one of the sayings you oftentimes hear is you'd rather be hot or cold but not lukewarm. So, you know, there's that notion of having to choose. But you know, maybe that's probably a little bit less sophisticated and maybe too, not nuanced enough perspective. So I'd be I'm curious to get your perspectives around this U.S.-China trade tension or so, geopolitical tension. And, and how New Zealand and New Zealand organizations should best navigate that? Well, maybe um, just to start off, uh, it's a real issue. And of course, we watch a lot of the ASEAN countries because they for a long time have had to balance out those two tensions of China and the United States. And more and more it's become China on merchandise trade and the United States on capital markets and security. And I think we continue to learn, you know, a country like Singapore has just been balanced on that for a long time and is quite astute as to how they handle those sort of relationships. There is an argument that it could, under a new administration, become a little more complex for New Zealand because it's possible that, uh, that there might be an attempt to rally US allies in the region in a more coherent way than has happened in the past. And we've been able really to sort of sit back from that a little bit and not get too involved. Uh, we're also, however, seeing it around New Zealand business in one other sense in New Zealand, which is that there's been a big churn as a response to Trump's um, sanctions and tariffs and other obstacles on Chinese um, exports and technologies. Uh, so there is a lot of movement of East Asian business and business investment out of China or reconfiguring within China um, into other assembly countries, other into, into other supply chain countries, sometimes just to make sure it's not made in China if it's aimed at the US market. But um, other countries like Vietnam are using that to, for, for their own purposes as well. And New Zealand um, product is part of that supply chain and has been involved not um, sometimes negatively, sometimes positively, in quite a big churn. Now, we're not seeing that so much on the US side. Um, and I guess the sort of onshoring story doesn't really apply so much to New Zealand's exports. Uh, we do, of course, I mean, in Victoria University, we are hosting one of the centers for Asia Pacific excellence, the Latin American one. And they're looking at the minute as to whether or not we could be paying more attention to New Zealand trade into Latin America, particularly Mexico and Central America, in order to get into the US market to help develop those supply chains in a way that's been quite helpful into the Chinese market. Mm. But that's still sort of work ahead for the future like that. It's a total focus for us here and quite an uncomfortable position, make it quite difficult, but I'd be interested to hear the other the views of the other panelists. Maybe I can just pick up on a little bit of what we think a Biden administration would do that would be different in terms of the relationship with China. If you listen to what the, those who are closest to the vice president say and are prepared to say, you know, sort of publicly as much as privately, they would well recognise that the relationship with China is going to be a competitive one for foreseeable future, but that within that competition, the scope to work productively in the areas where globally, we absolutely need China, you know, climate change being the prime example. So I think if the Biden administration comes in, I think they would definitely look to reset the dial of the relationship. It won't change in dramatic terms, uh, certainly not in, in their resistance to what are widely accepted as unfair uh, Chinese trading practices. But I think in the in management of the overall relationship, they would thicken up the dialogue, which has thinned down a lot in the period of this current Trump administration. Uh, they would probably, as Alan says, sort of look to work more with partners rather than going it alone in a sort of one-on-one -on -one confrontation with China in the way that President Trump has. Uh, and I think they would also certainly look to use the, the multilateral organisations, particularly the WTO, more, uh, more deliberately in, in managing this, the sort of existing problems with China. So I don't think it's going to be 
great. It's still going to be, as Alan acknowledges, a, a kind of a, a work in progress to find our balancing act. Uh, but it'll certainly be different if there's a change of administration. So clearly quite a bit of uncertainty there and you know we'll, we'll see how the how the two countries begin to un, un, understand their, their their mutual determination if you like and, and how New Zealand plays into that. Maybe I'll talk about one of the other risks um, and we'll move the conversation to that and, and this is the issue around social social issues, social justice issues. Uh, most notably recently, the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, Henry, you brought this up and saying that for many of the New Zealand organizations, they were having to come to terms with what this meant. Um, you, you've had a period of time where you've had massive writing, protesting, various other types of activities across the country and you know, ranking forth issues that in all likelihood are not new, um, have been there for quite some time. And I would imagine that any organization from New Zealand trying to understand how to navigate the economic environment of the United States will simultaneously have to figure out how to navigate the, the social environment of the United States. So maybe, Hannah, maybe you start a conversation around or just your perspectives on how New Zealand organizations are dealing with, with that phenomenon. Certainly, I think it's caused a lot of organizations and individuals actually to look deep inside themselves. And I, and I think that can only be a good thing. Certainly, um, one thing that um, we advise is, is, a, is a terrible word, but um, uh, be careful with your messaging, be careful with your marketing, and only base it on things that are really true values of, of you and your company. So um, I think in many ways it's forced companies to go, are we doing everything that's right here and everything that we can to make this better? Um, do we have diverse boards? Do we have... Um, diverse people within our organisations, are we inclusive? Um, and, uh, and, and are we being careful in the way that we are telling that story or, or we be careful in the way of the stories that we're actually amplifying? Because the worst thing that you could be do, do is tell a story that's not seen as true, that can blow up in any company's face, I think, in a, in a market where tensions are so high. So it's definitely a... a um, a, a careful situation where I think people have got to be overly cautious, overly cautious in just words and terms that you throw away, overly cautious in the messages that you're giving. But I also think it is a chance, as I said, to actually, actually lean into it and look within yourself and see what we can all be doing better. Hmm. I would imagine for many New Zealand uh, businesses and, and leaders, you know, there, there's a learning curve here trying to understand the context, which is a very different context than they would have come from uh, if they if came to the to uh, America from New Zealand. I mean, what are some of the things you're seeing, maybe or learnings that others are having about how they're actually doing effectively learning that context? A lot of a lot of stories. Like when people ask me about it, I tell my own stories. My husband is um, is African, West African, um, who lived in New Zealand for a long time. I say it's not just it's not just it's not just in the US. Hmm. How many of you, my husband was stopped eight times in New Zealand driving random tests. So I think there's a lot of stories that people are telling that helps to bring the realities of the situation to light that actually um, helps people understand what's going on here. Yeah, it is interesting. I, I, I'm, I'm from Chicago. Uh, America is you know, my home country. And, and it was fascinating for me going to a Black Lives Matter rally in front of the Capitol here in Wellington a few months ago with thousands of individuals and just sort of individuals who obviously did not have the contextual understanding of my experience growing up in the United States, but were able to find linkage or commonality in that experience to some of the experiences they've had here in New Zealand. So I think just that, that broader global phenomenon, how we think about social justice, participation and the like, I mean, Rosemary, I'd be curious, what have been some of the conversations or if what, how has this impacted the relationships or discussions that you've, you've had in any way, shape or form? Well, I just want to tell a counter story, actually. Um, one of the things that we fund, that Foreign Affairs and Trade funds, along with the State Department, is a scholarship to bring students from diverse backgrounds, uh, First Nation or African American, or just people who had no chance of getting an opportunity to study offshore. So recently we had some feedback from an African American student who'd spent, I think, six months in New Zealand. And he fed back to our colleagues in the embassy that 
for the first time in his life, he was so completely blown away by this experience. He said he felt that he'd been treated just as an American, not as an African-American. Now, maybe that only works because he's in a different environment. And of course, we're not perfect. And Hannah's experience is, is very direct. But uh, it was interesting, positive feedback. He came back feeling that, you know, he'd, he'd been acknowledged in a different way. Just um, to come back to the question about how New Zealand companies are adjusting, I want to just change the subject a little bit for a moment and ask Hannah a question because one of the criticisms that I'd heard previously was that New Zealand companies promoting themselves in the US tended to be too humble, you know, too, too uh, downplaying their virtues, if you like. So how are they adapting, Hannah, to having to push themselves and sell themselves digitally? Or is it somehow easier than in person? Oh, I think it's an eternal challenge. It's a little bit of the tall poppy syndrome, I think. Um, it's interesting seeing US companies through my team of American business development managers. Um, they go, my gosh, New Zealand makes brilliant products. I've never seen products that are as good as this based on such good values, made so well. Um, yet you don't know how to tell your story well enough. You've got to shout it. America's the opposite. We've got products that aren't made so well, not based on such strong values, but they know how to tell a very good story um, and tell it loud, very loud. So that's certainly one message that we do try and really um, help our customers understand what it means to be successful here is that you do have to be loud like the Americans. Constant challenge. Um, trying to sell digitally, I guess, does allow you to do that. Also, picking your partners. Um, you can't be successful in the market like this by yourself. So picking agencies, um, picking those that have got good value, same values as yours, but know how to tell your story in an American way, is, is a, it can only be a good thing. So the, the last issue we haven't talked about directly is COVID. And um, obviously, one of the big challenges with COVID is that we just don't know enough. Uh, and we're learning every day. And what we're learning every day is um, not necessarily consistent with what we thought we knew yesterday. So it, it's more a question around assuming and, and taking on board the uncertainty around this. It's how organizations should be thinking about managers from a time perspective. I mean, we're, we're dealing with something which people think and optimistically, maybe we have uh, some, some medical solution in four months, maybe it's eight months, maybe it's 12 months, maybe it's two years. And, and, and I guess it's that time frame variability that is really causing many businesses and many individuals at a personal level challenges. How, what advice would you have or what perspectives are you taking around dealing with the fact that there's you know, various points of time around this? You know, and, and how do you, what strategies do you think about in terms of diplomatic uh, from a commercial perspective? What do we know in terms of just the economic perspective? What, what advice or perspectives would you have around that? Well, maybe I can start just in terms of planning as best as one possibly can. I mean, the majority opinion here now seems to be nothing until next summer at the earliest. So I think, therefore, most organizations, certainly in Washington, including the federal government agencies, have really adapted already to, to a work practice which assumes that there's still quite a high degree of risk there in the environment from COVID infection. For example, in the embassy, we have two shifts rostered. Everybody gets the chance to come in at least one or two days a week uh, to work in the office because we think that's important for keeping connectivity, for just keeping people's morale and, and mental health, especially those who happen to be living alone. Uh, everybody's adjusted to this kind of, well, when I say everybody, everybody, of course, who's fortunate to have a basically white-collar job that they can do by distance and by Zoom. People have, in those categories, adjusted relatively well to, to this style of working. It's going to be really complicated for us when this, and for all, all of the diplomatic community, if there's a change of administration. There'll be some people we know, but we'll be in the position of having to do network building, contact making, virtually, which is, as we all know, a whole lot harder than when you can do it with a bit of human warmth and direct experience. 
But Hannah, how do you see things? Oh, 100% the same, Rosemary. I think we're in this for a long time. So uh, adjust or die, <laughs> not a terrible, terrible term to use. But um, uh, our offices too, we have, we're all working 100% remotely. We've said we're not opening our offices till at least April, like many, many, most other businesses here in New York. Uh, so our businesses also have to adjust to, to working remotely. I gave the example of the of the meat buyer before, and I've had business through the roof because he has managed to um, adjust to to virtual working. Um, the opposite, I saw a New Zealand business sold just this week. Um, I saw it in NBR. It was a teak. And she said one of the reasons she cited for selling her business right now is that she is used to coming into market to grow her business. Um, and she's not able to do that anymore. So it's a whole different way of doing business. Therefore, it felt like the right time for her to move on. So I think we're at that stage now of businesses and where people are understanding that this, is, this isn't a quick fix. We're in it for a longer period of time. So have to adjust what we're doing now or find another way forward. Yeah, I'd add to that that um, we've learned a lot about COVID that we simply didn't know, you know, only nine months ago. And uh, we've learned about contraction. We're now learning about treatment. Next, we hope we'll be learning about inoculation. And then we'll have to learn about diffusion. And that's going to take a long time and it's not going to go away. And, we're, and uh, from New Zealand's point of view, we need to learn from successful US examples and also from successful, even more successful East Asian ones about how you live with COVID rather than defeating COVID. And actually we've got quite a problem which does impinge back on US business relationships, which is we're just protecting the border. And ultimately we're going to have to reduce some of those big barriers around the border and learn how you protect inside the border and how you track and trace and how you live with it and how you still allow business and other movements to take place. And I think that's gonna be pretty hard to do. Um, at the same time, we're also tracking quite a few changes in consumer consumption, both in the US and in New Zealand, um, and patents, certainly in patterns of marketing and remote marketing and so on. And I, I think the next step is changes in industrial investment, because there are some big learnings about automation and re remote production out of all of this as well. So there's, it's, there's a long, long time of learning ahead and working out what you do at any particular time um, and not doing it in a premature way is quite significant as well. Hmm. I just quickly add to what Alan said. It's very frustrating for us actually here in the US because we know that there's a really pent up demand from students from you know high class universities who want their students to get an experience offshore. New Zealand is the obvious place in terms of the health safety. Uh, similarly, uh, growing interest from investor migrants. And of course, you know, for for all of these things, they're, they're just on ice until we can work out how to manage that border issue. So mm. hopefully it'll be interesting to know how many of the participants currently on this Zoom might be thinking of returning or not returning as well. And quite hard for us to plan that from a New Zealand point of view. Mm. We received a question, and I'm mindful we only have a few more minutes, but I'll, I'll try to get through some of the questions that have been raised. Uh, this is from Alan Ho, and, and Alan brings up the point that the New Zealand brand, or New Zealand Inc., if you like, um, has really been um, a, a very positive brand over the last few, few uh, months. Uh, one, because of the response that New Zealand's had to COVID. Uh, I think the international notoriety uh, that the prime minister has received, even going back to the response to the horrific massacre at the mosque last year. Um, and his question is, how, how do New Zealand organizations or New Zealand more broadly how do we capture or utilize this, this, this brand in the moment? And, and what are some of the strategies around that? Oh, a hundred percent. I was told before I moved to this market, don't expect Americans to know about New Zealand, or not to know too much about New Zealand. And it's mm -hmm. blown me away that I haven't met a single person here in New York who did not have a very informed opinion about New Zealand and a very positive um, opinion of it. Uh, I, I think New Zealand's brand has never been stronger um, and there's certainly a halo towards all New Zealand made products at the moment. Um, uh, so how do we take advantage of that? Well, um, 
we, our organisations actually joined up with Tourism New Zealand to do a bit of a New Zealand campaign here in market. This is the first time that we've done it. Um, so we're launching, it's called Made with Care in the next month. Um, and that's primarily um, aimed at food and wine and that kind of area to talk around the care that New Zealand brings to the land, the, to, to our food, um, care to, to keeping it there for generations to come. So we're quite excited about that ourselves because I think that's a really strong story to tell in this time. Um, and certainly we've got a lot of New Zealand brands also keen to jump on and support that. Um, and it ties in with the messages that they've already started telling them um, themselves. Alan, Rosemary, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I can just add a little bit. Uh, certainly, I totally agree that we've got this hugely good reputation and image. And it, I think it actually goes back to when the PM was even elected the first time and came to the UN and did some really clever uh, media here. And then certainly the, 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 mask, uh, the mask killings added uh, enormously. But as to how we take advantage of it, I think this really comes back to the point about the border because, you know, we've, we've got this image which should translate into students, should translate into tourists, into greater investment, etc. The question is how long do you keep, how long can we sustain that level of interest and that high reputation? Uh, it'll drift away. Uh, so I think we've probably only got about you know, less than a year in which to capitalise on that. Mm. People forget early, you know, quickly. Mm. So, Hannah and Rosemary, I think that's a, that's a really good point. And I don't know that people have thought about it in New Zealand enough. So if one of you were to write an article for um, stuff or something like that on how to translate and use that image in a business sense, we'd help place it here in New Zealand. Mm. Well, I think that's a, a great way to end it, Alan, with a call to action. And um, I think it's really just want to take the opportunity to thank the panelists, Alan and Rosemary and Hannah, for your time today and, and really providing your insights. And I think it's been really nice to be able to get three very insightful but complimentary perspectives on what is obviously a, a rapidly evolving dynamic situation. Um, I, I certainly think that there's going to obviously be an ongoing deep relationship between New Zealand and the United States, but it will likely, like all relationships, evolve to deal with the situations that we're facing. So thank you again from, uh, from Victoria University of Wellington, and we really appreciate you taking the time to join us. And again, thank you, Alan, Rosemary, and Hannah, for your time today. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stefan Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere rā.